0: Hello, this is Father Bill Watson with Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast. This is the second hour of a two-part interview with Father Robert Spitzer of the Society of Jesus. The second interview looks at Father Spitzer's academic careers, his philosophy studies, theological studies his doctorate in philosophy at the Catholic University of America, his thesis on the existence of time using Einstein's theory of relativity, his teaching stints at Georgetown and Seattle University, his years as president of Gonzaga University, his reflections on the state of Catholic higher education and the challenges that face it. We also get into Father Spitzer's work, in his institutes, his Majus and Reason Institute, his Spitzer Center for Visionary Leadership. And we end with some reflections on where we are in the culture, with a reflection also on his new book, Christ versus Satan in our daily lives, the cosmic struggle between good and evil. Again, without further ado, here is the second hour of our interview with Father Robert Spitzer, S.J. Father Spitzer, Bob, it's great to be back with you. We looked at childhood and school years and growing up all the way up to your entrance in the society in the first part of this interview. Now I would like to switch to your academic career, time in uh, philosophy, theology, doctoral studies, teaching, and then your post-Gonzaga University as president years and the development of your institutes down in California. So let me begin. Where did you do your theology studies?
1: Well, I did my philosophy in St. Louis University, but I did okay. my theology at the Gregorian University in Rome. And you were there for four years in Rome. Three years in
0: Rome, and then one year at Weston School of Theology <clears throat> in Cambridge. Did you? What was your academic focus or interest during the time of Philosophy, <coughs> philosophy was and and theology. For philosophy, definitely my
1: interest was metaphysics and philosophy of science. I worked on my master's degree with mostly Thomists. At that time, uh, I was getting uh, you know my uh, my interest in physics from Father Bob Bruns and from Father Paul Quay.
0: These uh, were at uh, professors at Saint Louis University. At Saint Louis University, Jesuit Jesuit professors.
1: Jesuit professors. Uh, they they were professors, but they were not my professor. I was just in these informal discussion groups with them, and they were really. Remarkably bright people, but I always loved Walter Ong too, who was a more of a literary type. But I I had truly wonderful professors I, at St. Louis. I, I had uh, James Collins, who was clearly one of the great light of philosophy of um, uh, history of philosophy, and then I, I I had Vernon Burke, who was truly a great light in in Aristotle. I had Bob Henley, Linus Throw, who were uh, fine Thomists. So I, I really had a, an all-star cast of, of philosophy and uh, science, you know, teachers who were who were really very, very helpful to me in, in my formation. Punahou was such a great way to begin the sciences, though, and, you know, my physics class in, at uh, Punahou was truly a, a rocket ship course for me, but it led right into everything I was doing at St. Slu- at Louis University.
0: Bob, were the theology courses and professors you took was what they were teaching in terms of Thomism was that mainstream at the time, or had that started to fall out of favor? It wasn't
1: that mainstream, but I was also interested in Lonergan, and so I complemented my traditional Thomistic studies with Lonergan studies. And he was a, you know, did the post-Concinn. Response to the Kantian criticism and mm. it was very much interested in philosophy of science. And I, I actually got that interest uh, w- way back again when I was at Gonzaga. Again, it was just one of these things where Father Dave Lee, who was my poetry teacher, of course I never wanted to take, but he kind of won me over to Gerard Manley Hopkins and John. Sure. So Lee comes up to me and he goes, Oh, you know, he goes, uh, Young Spitzer or something, you should probably come to this Lonergan lectures tonight. And I said, Lonergan, uh, okay. Uh, yeah, he's the guy who wrote that book, Inside. And she goes, that's right, that's right. Why don't you just come? These lectures are on the functional specialty. I said, well, you know, I got work tomorrow and everything. He said, no, no, just come, come. So, of course. You know, I let myself get talked into it, but I was just mind-blown by Lonergan in those lectures. And so I thank Dave Lee profusely to this day. He got me uh, introduced to all of that. And Bernie Tyrrell, who was his great disciple, you know, was always a good friend of mine and truly carried on that tradition in a way that was intelligible to me. His book, uh, Bernard Lonergan's uh, Philosophy of God, was very, very important in my own development. But by the time I hit the novitiate, I was full-on reading insight, and I was definitely interested in chapter 19 on the affirmation of God, which I found really interesting because it was not just post-critical, I mean, that is to say, after Kant, but it was also a very scientifically oriented. So I by the time I got to St. Louis after my novitiate, I was definitely you know, doing the Lonergan, on the other hand, doing the traditional Thomism, and I decided, you know, because I had read Diente in Essentia, I just, uh, On Being in Essence by Thomas Aquinas, very important little letter that he wrote early on, again, a mind blowing experience for me, read that work and just decided I'm doing my whole, my master's thesis, which it turned out to be a 230 page master's thesis, unpacking uh, the four premises in uh, the De Ante at Asensia, Proof of God. That was my uh, just terrific experience. And then I went on to teach philosophy at Seattle University.
0: Uh, did you and, did you kind of blow your board away at St. Louis University with your thesis?
1: Well, they always, uh,
0: yes and no. I mean,
1: people thought I was a bright enough guy, all right. But I think, you know, there was a fear that, you know, that Lonerganian aspect, uh, sneaking into my interpretation of Thomas Aquinas. And in all truth, there was. I mean, Linus Thoreau was completely correct uh, in his uh, views of my interpretation. But I couldn't help it because I always had this feeling that if Thomas had been alive today, uh, you know, he would have been very cognizant about responding to Kant's criticisms. And so uh, I always thought that the last person who would have been dogmatically uh, Thomistic uh, would have been Thomas himself, who was so open to Aristotle in an age of Plato. So I, I kind of, you know, contented myself with um, it's okay, you know, you can be both Thomistic and Lonerganian. But I did actually write my thesis on um, a Thomistic argument in the De Ente, but with a, the shadow, maybe or perhaps even the the ghost of Lonergan in it?
0: <laughs> well, I, I have to say this. Philosophy was not an easy lift for me. My, my, my mind works in different ways. I could do it. When yeah. I had to read Insight by Bernard Lonergan, my nickname for the book was Onslaught instead <laughs> of Insight. <laughs> Because it was just like, just crammed one thing after another after, you know, the 479th point, this and that. But I will say this, from the people that I know who knew you at St. Louis University, I did my philosophy at Gonzaga in Spokane, Washington. You helped so many people, Jesuits, through philosophy by taking time with them to go over arguments Philosophical principles and really opening people up to understand. So uh, it's a great kind of act of generosity on your part, and also your natural teaching qualifications. I just want to kind of give you a little shout out, a little praise for that.
1: Well, you know, I got to say, the Lord gave me gifts of understanding and curiosity, so I did like to share them with people. And my good friend Russell Heninger, you know. We did, really, we had a little day U coaching course, so we we did try to help a lot of people. It was uh, was a wonderful time at St. Louis U.
0: So you did your scholastic work then after St. Louis University teaching philosophy at Seattle University? And teaching philosophy at Seattle. Two years, two years? uh,
1: About a year and a half, because I had to still finish my exam for my master's thesis, which uh, leaked into my first semester of my first year of teaching at Seattle U. I had to delay that first semester of teaching, first quarter, excuse me, of teaching at at Seattle U. Uh, They were on the quarter system, and then uh, I started second quarter. So I I taught about one and two-thirds
0: years at Seattle U. Okay, good. And then from there, theology at the Greg, finishing at Boston. What
1: Mm -hmm. was your
0: focus uh, in theology? Scripture, Scripture, Scripture,
1: Scripture, 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 and Scripture. I loved everything in, in theology. Don't get me wrong. There wasn't a subject I didn't like. Sure. I Probably canon law was my least interesting one for me. And I know there are a lot of people who love canon law. I I just was not one of them. I mean, right. if I saw one more, you know, uh, exception to a canon or something, I just was snoring, you know. I, I just <laughs> could not keep my mind on it. It, it didn't make a whole lot of difference to me.
0: You know, when am I ever
1: going to encounter this case? When am I ever going to, you know, that's all I would Maybe a confirmation
0: that you didn't take over your dad's law firm. Well, (laughs) you know, in a way, there's a lot of
1: truth to that. But boy, did I love systematic theology. And uh, there wasn't a systematic course I didn't like. There wasn't a scripture course I didn't like. I liked the biblical languages, too. You know, I must admit, I I had a little eye problem that came up, you know, when I was studying Hebrew, which didn't help me much you know i i went to the holy land and when i got back from the holy land my retinitis pigmentosa it's an eye disease i have it started showing up a little bit how old are you at this time bob 28 years old uh, and i was seeing the pointing below you know there's these little points below the hebrew characters for vowel vocalization they were very blurry so uh, you know, I just thought, whoa! You know, I better get a bifocal.
0: Yeah, reading so, too much, reading too much. I'm really reading. Sure.
1: Too much, yeah. <laughs> so I thought I'll zip over to the uh, you know optometrist, get a quick diagnosis. And this guy is looking at me, and he's he's going, you know, questo non è un problema della bifocale, è un problema della retina, and this is not a problem of the bifocals. It's it's a problem of your of your retina. And I thought, uh-oh, uh, uh-oh. Uh, what does that mean? He goes, well, I'm going to put you in an Italian hospital. I said, no. <laughs> no, 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 I said, uh, I'll, I'll uh, see if I can find somebody back home. So I, I actually had to take off my, it was my third year of theology. And I had to miss like my first three and a half weeks of first uh, semester of my uh, third year. Because I had to fly back to the United States. I went to several retinal specialists in uh, Portland, Oregon.
0: Did not you go to the Massachusetts Ear and Eye Clinic, too, at some point?
1: Ultimately, I did. So right. they basically, they diagnosed me. They said they thought I had RP, uh, retinitis pigmentosa. You know, I said, well, next year, I'll probably be going to the Weston School in Cambridge, in, in you know, which connected with Harvard. So I said I, I could go to Harvard University, and this, uh, I believe it was this guy, Handelman. Dr. Handelman said, Okay, there's a person there named Dr. Elliot Burson. He is the guy you want to see. That, and he was at the Massachusetts and Air Institute. So uh, essentially, I went in the summer before the term began at Weston, and I began being treated by him. And he confirmed that I did have RP, but a very strange variety of it.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Uh, most of rp starts in the rod system which is the night vision peripheral vision and then goes to the central cluster of cones which is the precision vision and the day vision and uh, i had the opposite it struck me first in my cone system in my central cluster of cones which is the precision vision and the day vision so i stuck with wearing dark glasses early on and then it, it started moving out to the rod system and today i'm you know completely blind because of it, but definitely uh, made that discovery, which when I heard about RP, I was obviously concerned because of my um, scholarly interests. I just if sure. I can't read. I'm a dead man. Right. So anyway, I'm walking down the corridor one day in Portland, and old uh, Father Tom Royce, who was our provincial there, he one of the more interesting Jesuit characters, but he was the provincial at the time. And he had this moment of brilliance, a stroke of real spiritual wisdom. And so I'm walking down the court. He goes, whoa, Bob Spitzer, what are you doing here? And I said, well, Tom, I said, I got a problem here. And I said, I'm going to probably lose my driver's license. Maybe I'm going to go blind and having all these eye tests done. And he goes, well, do you want to come in and talk about it? I said, well. Well, sure. So I came in and I just said, Tom, you know, I got to be honest with you, I'm damaged goods. (laughs) You know, I did. I I told him, I just said, I'm I'm damaged goods. I I, I could go blind. This could really impede my scholarly career. I could be quite useless in the Jesuits as a scholar. And I'm going on and on and on, just droning on with all the consequences of this. It
0: sounds like desolation. (laughs) <laughs> well,
1: I wasn't clued into that at that moment, I'll tell okay. you. I, and so what happened was as I went through, I said, I said, Tom, you know, in sum, if you need to to, to, to get rid of me, I totally understand it. You know, I, I said, now's the time to do it. It's six months before my ordination. I completely understand it would be totally justified. I get it. And he kind of looks at me for about a half a minute and he goes, "Bob." What spirit have you been listening to? <laughs> exactly. And I just thought, oh. And I had forgotten all of my rules for the discernment of spirits. Yeah. And they just came cavalcating back into my head. He's a wily one, the enemy. Right. Oh, he certainly is. And uh, he said, no, no, I'm, I'm not throwing you out of the society. <laughs> Something like that. I said, oh, good, you know, I, I may still have some, you know, some ability to serve, you know. That's right. I could so answer
0: the door at some house. I can answer the door if all else <laughs> goes wrong.
1: Anyway, but he was very trusting and he allowed me to continue even in my doctorate. Luckily, the Lord slowed down the progression of the disease. Great. And so uh, I really didn't start. I was halfway through my term at Gonzaga as president before this thing started accelerating. You know, I had a very slow progression, but I did lose my driver's license, which Mm -hmm. did have its effects. Have its effects.
0: Well, I'll, I'll say this is that I've known you since the beginning of this. In fact, when you were, I think, teaching in Regency at Seattle University, I think it was at that time that you were concerned about this. And I said, you know, maybe you should go see an eye doctor. And you said, well, you know, you know, if I can't see, you know, I'm not going to be a pedagogue and my life's going to be basically worthless. But I think anybody who knows you knows that you have been one of the most productive people, even in your lack of physical sight. And perhaps maybe the lack of the physical sight has heightened other senses that you have. And God is compensating in very wonderful ways. So. Oh, without a
1: doubt. I mean, that's my whole total experience. I wrote a book called The Light Shines On and the Darkness, Yeah, uh, you know, transforming suffering through faith. And in that book, I mean, that's my experience. And especially in chapters uh, six and seven, I bring out my whole personal experience and uh, all the wonderful things that happened to me because of the progressive blindness. It was uh, really uh, when I was at Seattle U the second time. So I, I left you know, the Gregorian, I I got ordained after my uh, time at Weston, and then I went on to doctoral studies at Catholic U. And then um, after Catholic U, you know, I I did a, a dissertation on time theory, trying to reconcile the, you know, the obvious real effects of time on physical effects, you know, in in nature and and how, you know, the laws of physics actually affect time and time actually affects the, you know, the laws of physics. And the
0: the way that I remember you framing your thesis was uh, you were trying to prove the existence of time based on Einstein's theory of relativity.
1: That's basically it, uh, of real time. Yes, that's exactly it. For
0: for listeners, why is it so important to prove that time is real and that it exists? For, a variety for us of, dummies, for us dummies <laughs> out here.
1: <laughs> well, basically, you know, um, to make a long story short, part of the reason is because temporality is sort of the move into contingency. You cannot have a contingent being without God having first created temporality. So in a way, I'm back to my usual subject, right? Sure. If time is real, and god has to create time because being must precede time mm-hmm. right uh, existence must precede time then god must be real too you know bergson Henri bergson he did have a he wrote a book which is on general relativity theory actually uh, reconciling it with his own philosophy of time called duration and simultaneity and in that book what he shows is there has to be something akin to an elementary memory or an elementary consciousness that has to hold together the earlier and later of time. And so, in a way, reading this book, also very familiar with Whitehead's theory of temporality in um, several different books, mostly process and reality, but uh, then putting it together with it, uh, Lonergan's thoughts on being, especially his uh, view of being, and and then you, know, you, you piece together Lonergan Aquinas Bergson and to some extent without the heretical dimension of of Whitehead of what what he would call the subject-superject relationship I could just see you know time is has to be real and I can prove that I can also prove that Bergson is right you're going to have to have an elementary consciousness or elementary memory to put together the distensive nature of time time is is not distended or extended in space right time It has to be what we might call a contemporaneous continuum, a non-contemporaneous continuum, excuse me. Uh, Space is a contemporaneous continuum, Mm -hmm. but time has to be non-contemporaneous. So how can you hold together the part of the earlier with the later so that you do not reduce the present moment to a single instant, which would make, of course, time zero, and you add up zero an infinite number of times, and it turns out to be zero. So I knew the problem well. You you, you cannot make time an instant. If time's not an instant, then it has to be a magnitude. If it's a magnitude, you're going to need some consciousness to hold together the earlier part of the distension with the later part of the distension, so that both of them can occupy what we might call the present moment. In order to do that, you're going to need that elementary consciousness and elementary memory. It's going to have to be akin to the highest principle of all, namely the principle of existence itself. Namely, existence itself has to have some sort of consciousness, memory, or intelligence. And at that juncture, I thought, hey, you know, checkmate. Who can resist this proof? I'm just going to keep going back to relativity theory. I'm going to keep going back to you know, the the problem of holding together the earlier and later parts of the distension in the present moment. Otherwise, the time becomes an instant. If time's an instant, then there is no time. It's zero. As it were, the, the pig has wings for
0: zero seconds. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, that, uh, that, that's an image that I can grasp. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so anyway, uh, but I, I thought, I, you know, I really got a proof of a, of an intelligent God, of a conscious God. And that was my subterranean proof. And, of course, Dr. Paul Weiss, who was a huge
0: influence. He was a professor at uh, the Catholic University University of America. America. Great, great, great light in philosophy. Oh, started the American Metaphysical Society.
1: I mean, I read his book, First Considerations. That was it.
0: And he was your thesis director.
1: He was my thesis director. And he allowed me the freedom to write this, well, audacious dissertation trying to solve the problems of temporality and being in god and intelligence and (laughs) trying to to do this uh, as it were uh, as they say with the old typical graduate student sure he he allowed me to do it and uh, and he encouraged me to do it right and so you take a chance if you write a topic like that i mean if you want to be safe stick to history Then all you got to do is interpret a historical text correctly and you get your dissertation and everything's fine but he just said hey kid you know, <laughs> that's you call it, kid, kid. Hey kid, you know, you, you can do this. You know, you've you got, you got a good theoretical mind, you know, you, you know, just remember the one the one thing. I said, what's the one thing? He goes, don't lead with your chin. He goes, there's two things. I said, what's the second thing? He goes, look, when you criticize people, you know, you kick them, then you knock them down, then you jump on them and bite them don't bite him said, <laughs> okay uh i uh, i won't leave with my chin and i won't bite him he goes good he says uh, so then of course you know you had that all that jewish wisdom i, I love well, it well and it,
0: it sounds like stories you told me of your father too <laughs> oh yeah i mean <laughs> honestly there's it's wonderful wisdom I, yeah
1: you know you, they get it across most delightful voice stories is you know uh Adler, more Adler, who is, you know, a very famous Thomist and very, uh, you know, the editor of the Britannica series, you know, and uh, the gr- uh, great, great thinker series. So uh, anyway, uh, Adler comes to Weiss's door, boom! Weiss goes, come in! Adler goes, would you believe this proposition? And give him some preposition. And Weiss goes, nope. He goes, how about this proposition? And Weiss goes, nope. And you give him another proposition and he goes, and Weiss goes, nope. And he goes, well, what proposition will you agree with? And Weiss goes, nothing you say, because if I do, you'll go blah blah, blah and refute me. <laughs> this is the opening salvo, right? So I'm looking at this and I'm going, okay, sort of. There's a little bit of that in me, you know, too. And so I, I very much genuinely appreciate the the Weissian spirit, which he. Yeah imparted to me, and the courage, the Weissian courage, you know, if you think you know the answer, you should write about the answer. Don't pick the safe topic, pick the unsafe topic, which could actually help philosophy to to move a step further toward ultimate reality. And that's, I I got a great deal from uh, Paul Weiss and my my wonderful friend, Father Robert McTagg, he's he's now a Jesuit. He was with me and another Weissian uh, over there.
0: Yeah, he's a good friend of mine, too. He's interviewed yep. me twice for his radio show. He got another interview yeah. coming up. Just switching well, gears here a little yeah. bit. I, I uh-huh. was at Georgetown University founding the retreat programs when you came off your doctoral work and started teaching philosophy yep. at Georgetown. And mm-hmm. I'll just say that I was able to take great advantage of your doctoral work and your great theoretical mind. And I always gave you the talks on the Ignatian retreat on the creation of the universe and the creation of the human person, which I think the hundreds of students who went through those retreats in all those years was a huge highlight for them. And I could see almost all of your book topics coming out in those talks that I heard again and again and again. So I'm very, very grateful for those years that we crossed over there at Gonzaga University. Let me push uh, uh, forward here just a little bit. You clocked 11 years at Gonzaga University as president, plus you had many years of teaching at both Georgetown in philosophy and Seattle University. What are, from the perch that you have right now, reflecting back, what are the main challenges facing Catholic institutions of higher learning today? Are they chiefly financial or mission-focused or both?
1: Well, more than financial, the the primary difficulty and challenge is is mission without question. I mean, the abandonment by many Catholic universities of the mission of faith and reason is a huge loss. It's not just a loss to the Catholic Church, though certainly that, but it's a loss to culture, and it, it will have effects on the way people interpret themselves. I mean, the the abandonment of metaphysics is a part of the loss of faith and reason. Mm -hmm. And we are doing it with reckless abandon and cavalier, oh, sociology will replace metaphysics. No, it won't. Sociology doesn't study ultimate reality from a reasonable, philosophical, scientific, and, and logical point of view. No, it won't. And all the various subjects that are concerned with this great nexus between science and faith, between reason and faith, all of these things are being, you know, almost with reckless abandon, just being, you know, given up. You know, people think, oh, this is, you know, this is of a bygone age, but it, nothing could be more contemporary. So there's more evidence for God from science today than there has ever been in any other era.
0: Yes, and you, you've been God. one of the people who's really been helping uh, get that word out as well, too. Trying anyway. It's actually
1: getting a lot of that word out that's very, very important, but that's a huge problem. Uh, A second problem is, uh, I I think, is that we don't think we need the church's teaching. And this, you know, whether it come from authority problems or, you know, and and a lot of us have authority problems, Mm -hmm. whether it comes with disagreeing with the church's teaching, which is really the teaching of Jesus about sexuality or freedom or something else, but whatever the cause may be, we have deluded ourselves, and I would add my new book title in here. Uh, Satan uh, is definitely stoking this fire. Uh, oh, okay. We've convinced ourselves that the church is kind of a another <clears throat> bygone remnant of a past age. We really don't need magisterial teaching. Plus, of course, everything they're teaching is just. You know, it's just of a bygone age, too. I mean, uh, it's it's just
0: not mainstream. It It, it may uh, be even not mainstream, but also dangerous. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's considered dangerous, right? Yeah, dangerous and not open and very close
1: minded. And and this is going to interrupt the progress of pluralistic society. So I wrote another book. It's the third volume of my trilogy that's coming out. And it's called The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church A Defense of her controversial moral teachings. Excellent. I take the 12 major teachings and I just show, hey, you know, if you want to disagree with the church's teaching on cohabitation, premarital sex, you want to disagree with the homosexual lifestyle, you want to disagree with pornography, the so-called victimless sin, you want to just open up the world to gender change and sex change and, you know, you think that artificial birth control is a non-problem, abortion, No problem. Let's just make it free on demand. It's not a genocide anyway. Let's go for euthanasia. If you really think that, all you got to do is look at the secular studies that have been done on every one of these issues. Every one of those secular studies says the following. If you disagree with this topic, so if you cohabitate, if you go into homosexual lifestyle, if you go looking at pornography, what can you expect to find? A steep increase in depression, a steep increase in anxiety, steep increase in the manifestation of uh, psychological uh, traumas, a steep increase in substance abuse, steep increase in in, uh, suicides and suicidal ideation, and a steep increase in familial tensions, and even the abandonment of family, and a steep increase in impulsivity and antisocial aggressivity. That's what the studies, these are not my studies, these are secular studies. And so I've documented every last one of them. And right. I just want to say, you know, it's of course it's a spiritual crisis if you're not following the church. Because in my view, Jesus started the church for one reason, to interpret his teaching. If we abandon the church, we are abandoning Jesus. And if we're abandoning the church authority on moral teachings, we're abandoning Jesus's moral teachings. And if we're doing that, we should expect not to be just in spiritual crisis, though certainly that we're going to be in emotional crisis psychological crisis depression anxiety suicidal ideation and yes i'm not talking i mean i'm talking about uh, upwards of triple to seven times the rates of suicides these are all documented and by mm-hmm. the way not just in the united states but also in countries that are very open to all kinds of lifestyles like this in the netherlands new zealand et cetera. These are very well documented, so I'm pointing it all out. And the reason that I am is because we're in crisis and we're in crisis, not just in the university, but our culture is in crisis because we are believing our, as my friend Ray Rodino would say, we're smelling our own perfume. And the <laughs> perfume, of course, is that uh, we don't need the church metaphysics is inconsequential, faith and in reason, nexus is unnecessary, etc., etc. We are becoming a rapidly and anti-intellectual, but also an anti-moral principle. So we're abandoning objective moral principles. We're, and the, the double consequence of the anti-intellectual and the anti-moral principle, the anti-metaphysical, the, the, the triple consequence maybe of, of what we're doing, in our universities actually encouraging the opposite conduct will really redound back not only to the university itself and to all the the little intellectual lives that we are touching. And there are truly tens of thousands of lives that are being adversely affected at every moment. But in, in addition to that, the culture itself, it's in decline. Because if you abandon objective moral teachings, you abandon metaphysics. If you're just a pure instance of your subjectivity without any kind of objectivity to you at all or to your moral principles, if you abandon it all, why, you're just a big nothing. And eventually, you figure that out. Smart people figure that out. They deconstruct themselves right out of existence into a big nothing and once you figure that out and once you subscribe little wonder you're depressed and anxious and taking substances and arguing with your right. family members and then you know wanting to jump off a building little right. wonder and by the way if you think that we can uh, you know form a collective body of intellectuals who believe this tripe and we're going to get away with it uh, we're not our culture will suffer And it'll be much worse than a pandemic. In fact, it'll be such a spiritual, psychological, emotional crisis that I believe at the end of the day, we may have to just be taken over by a culture that really does believe in a theological authority. And that probably will happen as our culture becomes weak and weak and weak enough to just implode on itself, our family life being utterly destroyed by our sophistries, and so, you know, I hate to be pessimistic, but that could happen. Alternatively, I also believe that in every era where I have seen we are on the just the brink of complete disaster, God, in the twinkling of an eye, can turn right around and adjust uh, history ever so slightly, raise up saints here and there and everywhere, and can make a collective kind of regrouping like a D-Day invasion, right. that we're not even conscious of in his dominance, his gentle dominance of history. But that's another alternative scenario. But if, if that's going to happen, we have to have faith. And Jesus asked the question himself,
0: when the Son of Man comes, will he find any faith, any faith on earth? Right. This is a good uh, segue to my last topic, your new book that I just uh, gratefully got a copy of from you from my Christmas present, (laughs) published by uh, Ignatius Press, Robert Spitzer, SJ, PhD. Christ versus Satan in Our Daily Lives The Cosmic Struggle Between Good and Evil. And I always think it's important, the uh, little quotes that an author puts at the beginning of a work. And there are two of them here one from Scripture and one from Pope Benedict XVI Emeritus. And I'd like to read each one and have you comment why you chose this particular lead quote. So let me do the scripture one first from 1 Peter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, that you may declare the wonderful deeds of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light.
1: Yeah, I chose that passage because we are God's people. And, and as a Catholic Church, we are definitely God's people. But if we do not see that we have been called out of darkness and in given this gift of God's wonderful light, his light in the sacraments, his light in the scriptures, his light in church teaching, his light too in prayer, if we don't see that we have been called out of darkness into light that's a problem mm. if we don't see too that darkness is still out there and that that darkness could overwhelm the light in us if we have no faith if we do not go back to the only person who can save us god or in in, in for christians christ jesus and specifically christ jesus through the 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 catholic church if we don't if we lose sight of that and think we're going to be able to wander out of the darkness like a thick forest on our own that will just happen to come. Oh, yes, God can lead us. But without faith, it's going to be really difficult to be let out. We'll just keep putting our faith in one sophistry after the next. We'll just keep putting our faith in one new contemporary secular ideology after the next and as a matter of fact go deeper and deeper into the thick forest until the darkness the buio as the Italians would call it right. completely overwhelms us right and so you know in a way it's a call to faith you're a holy people a royal priesthood get with it right.
0: you know
1: You need faith, and you got to get right back to the Catholic Church. Don't think you can save yourself. You need Jesus to get out of the grip of the devil. Yes, he has defeated the devil, but you're still a free agent, and you're going to have to do something to prevent yourself from being, as it were, won over by the lies of the devil. Do you reject Satan? and all his works, and all his
0: empty promises. And the glamour. Do you reject the glamour of My evil? Eyes. I always like that one, right? Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, no question about it. That's uh, that's why the first quote, it's like, you're called out of darkness into the light by Jesus. You're a royal priesthood. Stick with your faith. Stick with the church. Don't get any illusions about your wisdom. Don't get any illusions about the wisdom of secular culture. It doesn't work and the evidence that it doesn't work is just within 12 years so we're talking about from 2005 to 2017 in 12 little years the group between 15 to 25 years old okay this is a group of younger people from 15 to 25 years old in that 12 years the suicide rate has gone up 56% the depression rate has gone up Uh, 56%. The anxiety rate has gone up 63%. The the homicide rate has gone up 22%. Oh, yeah. Secular wisdom, the new open wisdom, the, the new wisdom that is going to bring us all to a whole new way of looking at things. The light of the world, as it were, the light of Satan appearing as an angel of light, but of course, who is the prince of darkness. Right. Gonna put your faith in this. Look at the indications. His whole philosophy that the culture has bought into and runs headlong with it like a bunch of lemmings off the cliff is sinking us, especially our young people. The whole point of the passage is: wake up, wake up to Jesus Christ and His Church.
0: Amen. Amen. Here's a second quote from Pope Benedict, which was uh, comes from an interview with Peter Seewald. That is the on page 17 of your book, an introduction to the trilogy, and the quote is this from Pope Benedict quote, we are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate standard consists solely of one's own ego and desires, end of quote. You know, and
1: this is the problem.
0: Don't you think that's the original sin? That Well, it is
1: the original sin, <laughs> right. and it is now writ large and has been so beautifully Madison Avenue scripted right into our culture that we actually believe the original sin. We believe the lie of all lies. We believe that our ego and our sensual desires and just satisfying them will make us happy. But apparently, if we look at the statistics, it doesn't. We are literally committing not just a sort of individual suicide, I mean that figuratively, but also a 56% increase, lest we forget, among our young people, but also a cultural suicide as well. I hate to be so dramatic, but it is dramatic, and the statistics are dramatic, and we have to dramatically remember that Christ is the light of the world, and if we're not following him, or following, as St. Ignatius of Loyola would tell us, another spirit of darkness. I leave off with the question that Father Tom Royce, my provincial, asked me that I related in the previous episode, uh, our previous section of this. What
0: spirit have you been listening to? Amen. You know, and I give many talks to people of different age groups, and when I'm talking on discernment, through books and stuff in Sacred Story Institute, I tell people, I said, there's a thousand plot lines in life. I said, but there's only two scripts. There's one moving towards the light and one moving away. And in some points, I think we're in kind of a cultural moment where the the people who want to assert their own self as God and other people who believe in a God that one needs to obey, we're kind of at a flashpoint. and it's oil and water, and it's not something that's ever going to mix, and we're all going to be one, because they're just such radically opposed visions and ideologies and uh, metaphysical propositions for what is real and true and good. So it's it's a very, very kind of climactic crisis moment that I see. I don't know if you see it that way. I see it that way. Absolutely. So we do a lot of prayer, and And your book makes clear that uh, I heard somebody who is in spiritual warfare made this very, very important point, and maybe it goes back to your first quote from uh, Peter, that spiritual warfare isn't combating Satan, it is affirming the authority of the power that Christ has won over Satan. So it's claiming the victory is here, and I don't know if that's in your book, because I haven't had a chance to get through the whole thing. But
1: I don't have that particular quote, but that's okay. the whole point of the book, because it starts off with looking at how God is present in the world. Then the second chapter is Christ's defeat of Satan. Right. And then the third chapter, I do have the reality of Satan by talking about real exorcisms. Real
0: exorcisms, have- right.
1: Uh, put out there. And then finally, of course, I talk about the day-to-day manifestations of Satan and temptation and in all the different dimensions of accusation, deceit, etc. that he uses. And then a little bit on spiritual discernment in that fourth chapter. And then I move right into the deadly sins, which are his favorite eight avenues, as I would call it. Right. He's particularly fond of sensuality or what the ancients call gluttony. He, of course, loves sloth so that you'll waste your life. Right. Of course, greed is a great. Lust is particularly acute in our culture. And then, of course, we've got the, the usual four spiritual ones, vanity, anger, envy, and pride mm-hmm. and daddy and the great granddaddy of them all
0: final thoughts as we close the spitzer center for visionary leadership uh you have many institutes that you founded you are just north of 70 age wise uh, no
1: just uh, just south i'm uh, just south you're 69 yeah, 68.
0: 68 excellent well good yeah. you got 30 years left in you oh i'm hoping <laughs> We may get those eyes fixed by that time, too. Oh, yeah. Okay. But but looking, I will say, looking at mid-career, then, we're going to be optimistic here, because <laughs> I know that you're always an optimist, and yeah. I'm struggling to be one. <laughs> uh, what do you think has been the most significant thing that you have worked toward that you would call fruit that you hope endures to eternity from all the different things that you've been involved in? Well, probably
1: if I can choose three... What I do for faith and science and uh, high school, middle school, catechetical curricula on the evidence for God, the evidence for Jesus, the evidence for a transphysical soul that uh, can really help the lives of young people, that's paramount of paramount importance. If we keep losing young people at 42% a year, we're just going to be wiped out. Sure. So we, we have to, to, to basically get our acts together. Uh, that's my first thing. We're now in 92 dioceses. Uh, with our curriculum in various stages of high schools middle schools catechetical classes there's a lot more to be done part of the problem is just getting the catechism teachers and the high school middle school teachers to to know how important this topic is sure it's evidence for god you can be sure that the secular culture will just start taking a pickaxe to the poor kids and so that's it it is
0: taking a pickaxe to the poor kids without a doubt without and the teachers too and and the administrators Absolutely. People uh, are cowed, and they've yeah. just just—they've been shouted down, and they're terrified of putting forth anything that is, you know, way, truth, and life. Absolutely.
1: And, of course, what I do with the priests, for priests in the Spitzer Center is really important, you know, trying to build up, you know, the spiritual lives and the, the efficacy and the, the satisfaction that they have as priests, especially as it results in priestly fraternity and unity. I, I count that as very valuable. And I'm trying to work on starting some um, African universities, uh, Jesuit African universities that I think will have uh, great potential once I can get the endowments and the funding in place. So all these things are three projects that I'm working on very diligently. And, of course, I'm glad for the opportunity that EWTN gives me for Father Spitzer's universe and other kinds of opportunities through. Amazing
0: stuff. Amazing things. Yeah. So I've known you for 48 years. You're one of my best friends, if not my best Jesuit friend. Very happy to know you. I am very happy that you, (laughs) you took the time to do this little blog, and I'm hoping that it will be an inspiration to people and continue to shine a light on the great work that you do for Christ and his kingdom. And so I want to thank you, Father Bob Spitzer, for doing what you're doing and for being a friend, and I would want to ask you if you would close with a blessing
1: absolutely Uh, bow your heads and pray for god's blessing i mean the lord of consolation the lord of wisdom the lord of goodness the lord of love the lord of truth send his spirit down upon you so that you might see through the wisdom of this age and clearly lead yourself your families and others into the fullness of His light and love, the fullness of His eternal kingdom of joy. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy
0: Spirit, amen. Amen. God bless you, Father Spitzman. This has been Sacred Story Institute Jesuit Podcast with Father Bill Watson. If you liked our program, please subscribe to our podcast channel. And may God bless you.